And so here I feel like I can be my full self as a black person, as a black woman and not get criticized for, oh, black folks don't do that. Oh, oh, you sound like a white girl. Or, you know, like I don't have to face those things. I can do what I want and it's just accepted by people that this is who I am. And I'm very thankful for that because I've always struggled to be like, oh, maybe I'll keep this to myself. You know, maybe I won't be so loud about it. Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, an award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman with Trinidadian roots, podcaster, business strategist, and entrepreneur based in Valencia, Spain. Hey everyone, welcome to Flourish in the Foreign. So glad to have you for this week's episode. If you have not signed up for the Flourish in the Foreign newsletter, you need to go ahead and do so. There's a link in the description of this episode. One of the benefits of signing up for the newsletter is learning more about the show, the guests, blog posts that help you move, live, and thrive abroad. But also that's where I drop all new offers or deals or anything special. I drop it in the newsletter first. So for example, for the month of March... I'm opening up my calendar for one-on-one Move Abroad with Intention consultations. If y'all been riding with the podcast for a while, you know that I used to do this maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And so in celebration of season four, and because I've been asked to do it a lot in the years uh, ever since I stopped doing it, I'm opening up my books. Now you can sign up via the link in the description of this episode, but there are limited spaces and it's only for the month of March. And if you were signed up for the email newsletter, you would have already known that and you would have already been signed up. So make sure you're signed up for the newsletter. You know, Flourish in the Foreign is a labor of love, but labor nonetheless. So I'm asking all of you to please support this Black Woman podcast Yes, it is a indie show and a solo show. I produce, edit, and everything for this show. It is a big passion of mine, but like I said, it is labor. So you can support Flourish in the Foreign by going to buymeacoffee.com slash flourishforeign and buy me a coffee. Other ways that you can support is to make sure you're subscribed to this podcast. Make sure you're following the podcast across all social media platforms. It's actually really important. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, follow Flourish in the Foreign. Leave a review for the podcast. Five stars and a review on whatever podcast player you listen on, whether that be Apple Podchaser, Spotify, Google, or whatever. And of course, share this podcast. I love seeing you guys tagging the podcast in IG stories. So much fun. Or sometimes you tag me in comments, referring the podcast to people. And I love that too. That actually makes my day. I'm super 
happy to see that. So however you can and you choose to support this podcast, it is deeply appreciated. All right, on to the episode. Season four, episode four. Today's episode features Tiandra Burns. Tiandra always wanted to live abroad. However, she wasn't expecting to get there so soon. Tiandra was born in the Midwest United States and made the move across the equator in 2017 to the small country of Uruguay, living in the country's capital of Montevideo. Tiandra is a copywriter and content strategist for tech companies within Latin America, as well as other global companies. I really enjoyed Tiandra's story of not only how she made it to Uruguay, but the natural ups and downs of living abroad and how she has rooted herself in community in Montevideo. But I'm going to let Tiandra tell you all about it. My name is Tiandra Burns. I am 33 years old and I have been in Montevideo, Uruguay for five years now. So I grew up in the Midwest in Illinois, Southern Illinois. And so where I'm from, there's not a lot particularly of people that go abroad. Although in my experience, I've met people who have gone abroad. And my mother always told me when I was younger that she wanted more for me. She wanted me to get the heck out of our little hometown space and do something more with myself. So my mother really encouraged me from a very young age to think bigger and to always consider other options. And the idea of being abroad was attractive to me even from a young age. So I can say through seeing teachers go abroad and pick up and move and other people who go on vacation abroad, I knew that there was at least something other than what I was used to. I asked Tiandra if she went to university and if she did, what did she study? And if she had the opportunity to study abroad. So I went to university at Eastern Illinois and I got my bachelor's degree in finance. I did not consider study abroad options until, of course, my last two or three years when a good dear friend of mine told me how she took a summertime study abroad. I think it might have been in Panama and how much she loved it and how beneficial it was. And then I started researching. I started scaring. I was like, I got to get out of here. I want to try this. And then I learned that, you know, they had certain scholarships and things like that for you to be able to attend. However, at that time, I was so late on receiving the information that I wasn't able to go. But that planted the seed that there was that option to travel abroad. And I had another friend I met who talked about teaching abroad and she went to China and I was like, you serious? She's like, yeah, they pay for everything, blah, 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 blah. And she did go on to teach and she stayed there for many, many years. I think she's back in the States now, but that was very attractive to me. The idea that I can go and teach English and knowing that possibility also kept me on high alert to possibly go abroad. I had ended up graduating university and I already was thinking about being abroad. My plan was to 
go and get into real estate for a little while, maybe move out of state, collect up my money, and then potentially start to look to living abroad. However, I ended up getting in a relationship and then we talked about moving abroad. We both kind of had that idea. And so from there, it was just by happenstance that a friend of us told us about Uruguay, about the people of Uruguay that he had worked with in technology and how great they were and how warm and welcoming they were. And at that time, I, in my mind, I wanted to go to Barcelona, Spain. I wanted to, I, I wanted to go to a Spanish-speaking country. I knew that for sure. And so when I learned about Uruguay, I'm like, what is this little country? What's going on? So of course, the research began on everything. And I was like, I like this idea. I like, it seems like a place that I can get in there and be mostly comfortable. Even with the language aside, it felt like overall, it was something I could manage. It wasn't so much of a cultural uh, gap that I could adjust. And so then after research, you know, we decided to take the leap. So I was super curious to really get into Tiandra's journey to moving to Uruguay. This is a story that I really enjoy because it's kind of unexpected. So we researched for a couple of years and I was working in banking at the time. And I was like, okay, when my next vacation, maybe we'll go take a look-see. And so I looked at things like how the government is structured. You know, is it good for families? How safe is it? What is the black population? Because that was important to me as well. Is there an extensive amount of racism? You know, how how is the workforce? What is it going to be like for me to get a job? And that's when I discovered that it was very technologically advanced and that outsourcing technology was becoming a big thing for the country of Uruguay and surrounding countries. So I kind of knew that my career would shift into technology. And so that was kind of kind of nice to know, like what what kind of things would I be getting into? What else did I look into? In the school systems, I think I messaged that mentioned that and the cost of living, I tried. It's kind of hard to see how that was going to be, as well as the residency process and how it was going to be for me to solidify myself and here in this country. And when I looked at the time, there was nothing. <laughs> there was hardly anything on the process, maybe a couple lawyer pages, you know, the U.S., embassy website maybe had some things, but it was kind of all very vague. So I really didn't know about the immigration and residency process until I got here and got into it. Um, and then after the couple of years of research and it was time for me to take my vacation, that's when we booked to come to Uruguay for only a week because that's all I had, <laughs> but it was enough. After the first day we came we walked back to our Airbnb thinking, oh, we got this. And it, there's a lot of walking. I wasn't, I wasn't physically prepared. Like I didn't condition myself to do all the walking. So we walked back. I was hurting. My legs were killing me. I got stung by a bee <laughs> in my eye that day. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God, like, it still didn't make me feel like this was like the worst decision ever. It just was like, oh my gosh, this is just, how crazy is this? And so we come up to the Airbnb finally, and there you just see the moon big as big as anything, orange harvest moon, I think. And you can see, you know, the farm and I just dropped to my knees. And that was the day I knew 
I wanted to come back. And so after our week was over, I was like, I want to come back here in a year. And it was a joke. It was a joke. I really wasn't that serious. I didn't really think that was possible. But if you look at my passport, we returned to move here nearly a year exact from when we visited for the very first time. I asked Deandra, how did she prepare to make this leap abroad? So we already had the home on the market and we just were having a hard time selling it. And, and this was back in 2017. So we got back and things just started going wrong with the house. And we're like, all right, I think that's a sign. Let's, let's get rid of it. And then Trump won the election and we were like, all right, we out. We out, we out, it's now or never, it's, it's our sign, let's go. And so I remember by Thanksgiving of that year, we had finally decided. And so I'm like, oh, goodness, we're going to tell my family. But my family, I feel like they kind of knew already, like they they already kind of had an idea. So we started telling our family and started spending more time with them and friends and everything. And it wasn't until we booked the tickets that it felt really official. But in between time, we sold the house. Oh, my gosh, the process of packing up all of our things. I mean, we had decided years before that we wanted to move abroad. So then I was strategically like not buying certain things. Like I wasn't just going out and buying things because I just was like, no, because eventually we want to move. So only things that make sense. And so I packed everything into these boxes and we moved into a temporary apartment, which I kept everything in boxes. And I had to do all of this research because our choice was let's send everything in a shipment. Because here in Uruguay, I think that there's some time frames, but you can ship your home goods ahead of, ahead of time and you have so long to do it. And then after that, like you have to put a guarantee. It's a whole thing. So we hired a company out of Florida to come pick up our things. Oh my gosh, this day was a mess. They pick up our things <laughs> before, but they were late and they forgot all the packing material because we ordered door to door. So then I'm thinking I took everything out of the boxes because they were like, oh, we have to check everything for insurance purposes and blah, blah, blah. So I thought, okay, let's just unpack everything and then they can pack it back up. They come and they say, truck broke down with all the materials. So yeah. And I was like, well, thank God here are all the boxes that I <laughs> took everything out of. So they hauled our stuff away finally. For me, it really wasn't hard to downsize because um, I don't keep a lot of things. It was just like, you know, like your box of memories from like high school and, and you know, your, your high school lettermans and all this stuff. So that stuff was put away and then clothes. All we packed were two suitcases between the two of us and two check bags. And I packed for winter and I packed for like clothes for jobs, for working. Cause I was like, I don't, I don't know. I hopefully I can get in soon and I can just have working clothes. And so after that was packed away, we had two more weeks, which was to spend going down to see more family and then just kind of relaxing a little bit before the final day to board and insurance, everything like that, that was to be done when we got to Uruguay, the visas for Uruguay, when you get there, 
they stamp you and you have 90 days free and clear to be there. And so then you can renew at immigration if you want to. So our goal was to get there, get the visa and start the residency process immediately, which included having your birth certificate, which had to be apostolized and translated and what do you call it? Like sealed by like an Uruguayan translate, like a professional. So we had to bring all of our original documents and including like your health records too, and bring them with us and then go through the whole getting it all translated, booking the appointments. And I thought, I thought, oh, it's going to be so simple. We can go in there, get our residency appointment. And hopefully in like three months, we'll have it. That, that did not happen. That did not happen. <laughs> it took a lot longer. The language barrier was so tough for me because it was such an important thing. You know, your, your residency documents. And you want to be clear as you can on those things. And it was so tough, so stressful. And it was just an, a, a whirlwind in a year to pack up and be like, all right, family. I love asking my guests about the day they left their home country and the day that they arrived in their new country. Because in all honesty, these stories are usually so crazy and intense. And maybe one day I will make a compilation episode so y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. But I'm always really curious about it, especially since when I left the United States, moved to Spain, I had a whole fiasco. I left my passport at home. That's a story for another day, but it was insane. So I asked Tiandra to share with us what happened on her day of departure. So the day we left, it was, I think it was early morning. And by this time I had spent a year prepping to get ready to go. We'd already seen the country to visit and I was ready to go. Like my body was so tense because of the political atmosphere we were in at the time and the uncertainty of what was going to happen with our country, with the economy, with everything. I just wanted to go. I just wanted to go and get out. And I just remember my body being so tense. And I was just like, Lord God, please just don't, let's just get on the plane. Let just, let me just get on this plane. And we get to the airport. And they have these new scanning machines, right? Where like you have to scan your passport and all this. It's not, you don't go up to attendant. So we try to scan our passport and it says like, you need a visa. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't need a visa. I get my visa when I get to the Uruguay inside. And so then we had an attendant come help us. And she goes, yeah, that's what it says. But she went to check with her superior. She looked kind of new. So maybe she, did, she didn't know or whatever. So thank God. So for like the five or six minutes that we were waiting there at the counter, I'm just nervous. I'm just freaking out. I'm just like, if they tell me that I need a visa after I meticulously researched to make sure I didn't need a visa beforehand, I'm going to be so angry because I made sure so many times that that was not a process I needed to do. And he comes back and says, yeah, everything's good. And I was like, oh, geez, <laughs> thank you. Like I was so, I was so worried because at that point, which is ill-advisable, but we just booked our tickets without like the insurance that you have. So we booked one-way flight tickets and that was like it. Like that was the faith that I had that it was going to happen. Any other time we get insurance, of course, but that time I was like, there's no going back. This is happening. I'm <laughs> gonna miss out on my money. 
<laughs> so after that, we say our goodbyes and we go through the checked. And then I start to feel a little bit like, huh, like I start to feel like, oh God. So I think it was like Panama, then Peru, and then Montevideo. And being on the flight, it was just like unreal. I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe we're doing this. We're out. And oh, being in Panama, like the, the journey is like a 24 hour journey because you have, of course, layovers. There's not really any direct flights. And so in Panama, of course, it's October when we leave. So I'm, you know, and boots and warm things. And I step off the plane in Panama and it's just hot. And I don't have an extra change of clothes to get out into something more comfortable. And it was just sweaty and gross. It was just awful. It was just awful. And then we get to Peru. It's nighttime. So I didn't get to see anything of Lima. And then we finally land in Montevideo. And it was just like, I felt like I had finally landed home because when we visited, I got homesick for a few days. When we landed back from our first visit from Uruguay, I was just sad. I was just sad and in my bed. And I never knew that it was possible to be homesick for a place that you don't even know. And that's part of what made me have more confidence that it was the right thing for me. So when I landed that day, I felt like I was home and it didn't matter to me what kind of obstacles we were going to face because surely there was going to be a ton. But I was just finally out of the U.S., out of that political mumbo jumbo, starting fresh. And it just felt amazing. It felt amazing. The first year abroad. Oh my goodness, the first year is always full of so many ups and downs. Just a lot of unexpected things happen. It's like you have to get regulated to your new environment. So I asked Deandra to share with us her first year in Uruguay. The first year was... Honestly, it was so many ups and downs, but it was so amazing looking back because so many things kind of fell into place, even through all of the issues that we were going through. We had gotten a hotel for the first two weeks. I had been looking at apartments. I had a wonderful friend who kind of was able to tell me a little bit of things of what to expect in renting apartments. And then after third day, I started looking at apartments. And by that last day, we had seen the apartment, decided on it, and we had signed for it and went to the bank and put our deposit down. We are still in that apartment to this day. And I only seen two apartments <laughs> and it was amazing. And then shortly after that, after going back and forth to immigration, we were able to find a couple friends to help us go online and translate things so we can book them. And so after that, we finally get our appointment to start the residency process. And that was a big sigh of relief, but still a big weight on your back because there's a lot of things that you cannot do until that is settled. It makes things more difficult if you don't have it. So I ended up getting a job after I think month three or four, I got hired onto a job and that was amazing. It was amazing because <laughs> believe it or not, the company I ended up working for was a company in Chicago that had a near shore in Uruguay. And what was even crazier is that 
one of the colleagues that I ended up working with was someone from my alma mater. We went to the same university and even in the span of the same couple of years. And that for me was just like, I'm where I'm supposed to be. How do you move on the other side of the world? Your first job you get is with a company in Chicago. And then you have, you know, a colleague from your university working there with you. That's just like, how does that even happen? <laughs> you know? So that was really awesome. And I met so many friends during that year. And it was just really nice to meet people and start feel like I'm settling in and getting to know the local places and how people do things. I think the difficult part was just daily living because we had an apartment with nothing. Our things were still locked up in a box and we we weren't going to be able to receive it for some time. So I think the first thing we bought was a hot water heater. <laughs> the apartments here do not come furnished. No hot water heater, no stove, no fridge. You have to buy all of that on your own. And so the first thing we bought was a hot water heater because we were like, we don't want to take cold showers. It's not happening. And by week two in the new apartment, got a, got a futon that like folds out into a couch. So that's what we were working with and just getting used to not having things, not having a mirror to see myself, not feeling normal. You know, you're cut out from your regular routine and you don't have any way or anything to help you feel normal. You just kind of feel like, like a fish out of a frying pan, just, you know, and that was really hard because I just wanted to feel normal life and not having my home in, in order was what I needed to feel more settled. And that didn't happen for many years. <laughs> I think for my birthday, we bought this really cheap table that had like six chairs. And so that we can have chairs for people to come and hang out with and didn't get a sofa for a while. And it was great because our friends would just come over and sit on the floor and chat and 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 it was great. No nobody cared and I would have dinners for the people that we had met and we had a good time. We formed a, a very good bond with those people. And the people we first met in that year became the core of our family here and we still consider each other family. Those first few people that we met and it was amazing. And then by the end of the first year, I celebrated my birthday and New Year. New Year is different here. Christmas is different here. They set off fireworks. So go on the roof and look at all of the everybody shooting off fireworks. And it was just amazing. And I remember New Year's Eve watching the fireworks go off. And I was like, I cannot believe I am experiencing a new year in a new country. What a way to start the new year. I can't believe it. We're actually here. And that was just some of the highest moments that first year and some of the lowest moments. I cried a lot. <laughs> I cried a lot to my mom and brother. And it wasn't even that I missed being in the States. It was just, I missed the sense of normalcy. I missed having my regular routine and I was kind of knocked off balance. So there was just a lot learned in that first year. And eventually it got easier from there. I was really curious as to how Tiandra's career has evolved since she made her leap abroad. My career has shifted 
and has grown so much since I've been here. I feel like if I had not moved abroad, that I don't think I would be where I am in my career. I got my degree in finance, as I said, and so um, I worked for a bank before I moved, trying to, you know, get prepared to maybe work for a bank. But I ended up as a sales development rep for a software development company. And I mentioned before that technology was an industry um, that I was probably going to work in. I found it on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is such a helpful source. There's a lot of sifting out the not so great stuff that's there and the spam stuff, but it was such a great way to connect with people internationally, great ways to see opportunities that you wouldn't maybe see on other job boards or anything. So LinkedIn was a great resource for me and that's how I found it. Um, the work culture here, I love it. It's like I'm telling you, it's almost the end of the year now. Whenever December like 15th hits, you can forget it. December 15th to like January 15th, people are clocking out. They're going on vacation. They don't want to do nothing. And I like that because it makes everyone takes a pause. Everyone, people don't like to work. If they don't have to work past six or seven, they they don't normally. And most things close at that time, unless it's a bar, of course, or something like that. And we start our days later in the day. Like I used to get up and go to the bank at 6 a.m. And now I'm rolling out of bed at 10 to maybe start work, you know. So here it's more laxed and laid back. No one's in a rush. No one's in a hurry. And I think that's great. They take their holidays for real. Time off is time off. You get mandatory after, I think after your first year working, you get a mandatory 20 days of paid vacation. And that is mandatory for anywhere that you work in Uruguay, which is great. So in terms of workers' rights and what you have available to you, I feel like it's great. I don't feel like I'm working myself to the bone. Now, granted, I'm in a different field now, so that's different. And as far as that goes, I went from software development and I have always been a writer as far as just kind of an, a fun thing on the side for myself that I started in college. I started a blog in college and that's when blogging was starting to become a thing like 2011, 10, when people were starting to, then the monetization of it started and then YouTube started kind of, and I was like, oh, there's money to be made here. Okay, well maybe I'll revisit this, you know, cause I just didn't know how to go, go about it. And then I got released from the job and then I was actually unemployed for a whole year, which is kind of crazy, you know, living abroad and thinking to be unemployed for that long is like, it's scary. So that was really hard. And during that year, I had to reassess where I wanted to shift my career. And I didn't really want to be in sales anymore. And I didn't really want to do um, business development anymore. And I wanted to shift to writing because I'm like, I can make money writing. They need writers. I know I just had to get my foot in the door. And so I started kind of shifting everything, my online profile. And just as I almost was getting opportunities, the pandemic happened. And so then I was like, well, dang, like, I feel like I almost would have gotten a job, but then it happened. And so luckily I had a friend who was still doing social media content and things like that, who had actually landed a job. And she said, 
I'm going to see if I can pass this on to you. You know, I'm going to see that you want to do this. Here it is. And that's something that I feel in Uruguay is people are willing to pass your CV, put in a good word for you. It's about knowing people, but people are more willing to do that for you or share your stuff. In the U.S., you know, you ask someone, they're like, no, nah, you can do it yourself. You know, I feel like you're so on your own. But here I can't tell you how many people asked for me, asked for my resume to send to wherever, told me about opportunities, and it was just such a great support. And she, although my friend who gave me this opportunity, she's from the U.S. as well. And But we kind of help each other out. And so through that opportunity, um, which was just social media, they asked me if I wanted to do blogging. I was like, yes, yes, this is exactly, you know, this is exactly what I want. I just need the opportunity to start writing, to build my portfolio so I can move forward. And that's what I did. I started writing for this pool company and it ended up taking off. And then next thing I know, I am working for another agency and another agency. So now I write content and I'm a copywriter for technology companies, particularly in Latin America who want to reach people in the U.S., who want to reach other sources in the U.S., which is what I knew would end up happening because, you know, it's really tech-driven. And because of that, I'm doing the job that I love. I'm writing. I have my own schedule. I'm providing value to people. I really want to do this writing thing. I really do like it. And I don't know, just so many, so many opportunities are now coming because I've been this about like two years now. And the pandemic heightened the need for content writers and for social media people because everything kind of blew up for online. So thanks to the pandemic, <laughs> I ended up doing now what I always wanted to do, but didn't know that I was ever going to be able to do. I used to say, oh, you know, when I retire, you know, writing would be a great gig, you know, because I don't see myself being able to sit down and not do nothing. But I can write or, you know, Google Voice to t talk, you know, to write. But here I am with my retirement planned already in action. Like I'm already doing what I thought I would do when I retire. So I got very lucky in that. And I'm very, very thankful it happened. Hey, everyone. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you are, be sure to support this podcast by going to buymeacoffee.com slash flourishforeign and buying me a coffee. You can also write a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and anywhere else you listen to the show. Thank you so much for listening and supporting. Now, back to the episode. Language acquisition is super important and often really affects one's experience in a new country. So I asked Deandra, how's your Spanish? I am not fluent, but I did study in high school for three years. So I was aware of the basics, but of course, it's a different Spanish. So there were some things I had to adjust to, but I hadn't, I'd been out of practice so long that I still struggled so much. I struggled so much because the way sometimes people talk so fast 
especially with the legal documentation and the residency process, there's just a language there. There's, you use a different set of vocabulary that I was not aware of or, or had anything in my mind for. So I, I had to learn kind of on the go from what I already had instilled in me. And then from there, just interacting with people, putting myself out there and just making an effort. And I'm still struggling. I'm not going to lie. My Spanish is not nowhere near where I want it to be, but it's a process. It's a process and you kind of have to be gentle on yourself with that. It's like, I've been here five years, but it's going to take longer and that's okay. Healthcare, so important. I asked Tiandra to share with us her experience of healthcare in Montevideo. So healthcare here I knew was pretty much universal. Anyone and everyone has access to free healthcare. You just sign up. I think you pay a small fee to start and then that's it. And I didn't actually get any healthcare until I started my job about three months or so after I got here. At that point, I chose because I chose private insurance because they had access to maybe more English speakers and things like that. So I just, and the, it was so affordable. It's so affordable. It's ridiculous. And so while I was employed, I did have the private care. I did go there to do a couple of things, not a lot, but they were very helpful. They didn't have many English speaking people. So, um, but I was able to navigate. They were rather quick. Now this is private insurance. It was rather quick when I went in and had everything they had. You can book online and things like that. And after that, once I was no longer at my job, I went to public insurance. I've always had public health insurance. So for me, it's not a thing. I know some people have preferences depending on your need, but me, if I can get in, get care and be well taken care of, I, it doesn't bother me. And so that is just to simply sign up. So here it's a system. You can choose either private health insurance or public. And you have to choose a mutualista is what it's called. And you can't have both. Like you can't have private and public or whatever. And you have to stick with that one. If you want to stick with that one, you have to cancel and switch. And I've been in like the little emergency room on public health insurance. I waited a long time, but I just, you know, you just go in. I didn't have an appointment. I'm not anything I'm not used to, but the women were so nice when I went in there. I was struggling. I was trying in Spanish, but I did start speaking in English and they were able to also speak back to me in English. And they, and they try, they really made the effort, which I, I really appreciate because when it comes to your health, that's another thing that you really want to be clear on, like being able to tell them your symptoms, be able to tell them your pain and how you feel and all of that stuff. And then to understand what they're telling you, you know, like, they're telling you you got something really wrong. You know, you want to be able to know. And so for me, having that experience where they're able to at least understand to some point really made me feel better because that was, that was a worry for me. What happens if I become terminally ill or really ill or something? And will I have anybody to attend to me? Will I understand what's going on? Because you don't always have someone who can come with you to translate or you can't always depend on there being an English speaker. That's like one thing I will say. If you go to another, don't expect people to speak English. Just, just get that out of your mind. And so I had, I think, an overall positive experience. The medicine 
The medicine was not expensive. And for public health insurance, I don't pay anything. I paid the initial fee. And then like I might have to pay for like my medicine or something. But when I go into the doctor's visit, if I break an arm or something, I just go in there. They attend to me. They look me up and that's it. And it's it's been pretty great. I've had a few friends who've had babies or who've had, you know, kind of surgeries and they've all been tended to great and they're all women. So it's it's nice to have that care ranking. I, I'd rank it pretty high. I mean, it can be slow, but Uruguay is kind of like a slower country. You know, they kind of. But if you're patient, if you're not like, then you'll be I think you'll be OK. I'm very satisfied with the health system. And even if I wanted to switch over to a private carrier now, even as a freelancer, I could do that. I might have to pay a little more for that, but I could do that. And it, it does cover things like, I don't know, I think glasses might be covered, but not so much. I think that's always a thing, right? No one ever covers dental or glasses. I don't know why. Oh, I got my first pair of glasses last year. And this is weird. They have all of these shops to buy glasses, but you know how we're used to going in there, getting our eyes checked by the optometrist and then ordering your glasses there. No, you have to go to an optometrist separately and then take your script to one of the many places to then buy your frames. That was, that was weird for me for so long. I'd ask people, how do you do it? What's it cost? It's like no one knew. No one's like, I don't know. You just go do this. I'm like, but I need concrete answers. <laughs> so now that I know how to go get new glasses, I feel more confident now, but it is not like anything. And it's weird. They have all of these shops, but you can't just go in and get an eye exam. I asked Tiandra to explain the tax system in Uruguay and her overall experience managing her tax liabilities. So... It's complicated. It is complicated, especially when you're talking about the freelance side. But on the side of being with an employer, you sign up to have them take a percentage out every month. And at the end of the tax year, they just send you how much you owe or how much you get back. And you don't have to file your taxes. Your company, the company that you work for, handles all of that for you. And so this is interesting. When you find out how much you, say, get on your return, you go to this local place called, it's called Abitab, which is where you like pay your bills. You can buy tickets for concerts. You can exchange money, recharge your bus card. It's kind of like this weird all in one place. When you go there and you give them your identification number and ask, do I have any money on my account from taxes? And they will say yes or no. And then they will just give you your money right there. So after I was employed for the company, I had paid so much that I got so much back. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I just go up there, give them my ID and they gave me my money. And I was like, yes, this is so nice. <laughs> no waiting four or five months for your tax return here. But it's different when you get to individual contractor, owning a business. Those things are whole different. You have to pay a fee per month. And then on the U.S. side, you know, we always got to pay our taxes like we always have to pay taxes. So it's nice to have that here in Uruguay. Uruguay and the U.S. have an agreement to where if you're paying taxes for one, you can maybe get exempt. And then they kind of do the, the math. So you're paying maybe 
what the difference is or something. So that's nice to not necessarily be double taxed, but you know, you're taxed in other ways, like drawing money from the ATM, interest rates on your card, you know, things like that. Tiandra has permanent residency and I asked her to share with us her journey to obtain permanent residency in Uruguay. So I honestly just got my permanent residency granted a year from right about now, thank goodness. <laughs> and I tell you the weight that fell off my back when I got that notice was crazy. And when I got that notice, they had sent me with somebody else's name saying your son got it. And I was like, I was like, excuse me, this is my number, but I don't have a son. So they sent me another email saying, oh, our bad. Yes, you have gotten your son. <laughs> so that was, freaked me out for a while because I was just like, did they just try to try to not give me my stuff? Like I was freaked out. But for those four years waiting, it was constant because the process here is, you know, you have to have your vaccines up to date or your, you know, your health up to date, your birth certificate, apostolized, translated. Uh, and then of course, work history, like you have to be working currently and you have to submit documentation of working. And then of course, how much you make. And so for a while I was working and then I finally started to get the documentation, but then I lost my job. And so then I couldn't, I couldn't submit the documentation. So then I had to wait until I got another job to submit income verification. And so once you finally get all those documents together, you go in, you give your fingerprint, and then they'll ask you interview questions like, why are you in Uruguay? You know, do you enjoy Uruguay? And things like that. It's like very informal. Like you go into the office and like, if you're at that point, they'll ask you. The immigration process as a whole was so stressful because nobody, nobody in that office spoke English. And so I had a very dear friend at the last year of this process who was kind enough to go with me every time I needed to go to submit something to help translate for me because it was so stressful. And then with the pandemic, it made things even worse. Like you had to do everything online. They switched their processes. You couldn't just go to the office. And it was, it was, it was so stressful. But the process, it's, it's weird to say as hard as it was, it is very simple. You just need certain documents. That's it. It's getting them all together and getting them all together at the same time that is difficult. And that's why I chose not to get a lawyer. Like there's some people who I know who've chosen to have an immigration lawyer go in and help gather everything and do everything. And I didn't have that money because I asked because at first I was like, maybe I just need to get a lawyer to help me get this done because maybe I'm just not doing it right. And I asked for a quote and it was like a few thousand. And I was like, there's no way. There's just no way I ha I have no pennies to my name. There's no way. So I managed it without any legal help with just friends who I could lean on to translate for me and just being diligent. And I'm so thankful that process is over now. <laughs> oh, and it's been a big relief and it just felt like such an accomplishment to have that document say permanent resident and that I 
don't have to worry about leaving, going anywhere, getting kicked out. It makes things so much easier with insurance and, you know, jobs and doctors. It just makes the overall process of living in Uruguay so much more solid. To be black and abroad. It's a question that I love asking my guests because blackness is not a monolith and people's experiences abroad are definitely not monolithic. How they are perceived and received and how they walk and move in their blackness are just so different and varied. So I asked Tiandra what has been her experience as a black American woman abroad. One of the things that I have grown to learn and as I go about being here is kind of or exploring more is the idea of blackness and how that affects me being in the world, not just being in the U.S., you know, but being in the world and seeing how other people see me. And I remember when I was the first few years when there was hardly any black people, people like the first week or two, people would come up to me and I was so like not used to this. People would say, oh, you're so pretty, of course, in Spanish. and Oh, you're so beautiful. And I was like, cool, that's great. Like I, I wasn't used to that. Like I wasn't used to that. And then, of course, that eventually dies off. And I feel I'm not, I feel like I'm not what people would consider a, a regular, a everyday, average black person. Like, I'm, I'm a nerd. I like anime and I like different things. And that was definitely something that shaped me when I was younger. You know, when I was younger. I'm not like a lot of different people because black doesn't have an identity. You know, I mean, it doesn't. We don't have to fit into the box of this or that. And so here I feel like I can be my full self as a black person, as a black woman and not get criticized for, oh, black folks don't do that. Oh, oh, you sound like a white girl or, you know, like I don't have to face those things. I can do what I want. And it's just accepted by people that this is who I am. And I'm very thankful for that because I've always struggled to be like, oh, maybe I'll keep this to myself. You know, maybe I won't be so loud about it or, and then like wearing my natural hair. Like I honestly went on a natural hair journey right before I moved. And I remember going to my first interview and I was like, I'm going to wear my hair in a high poof and I'm just going to go just natural. And I did it and I did it. And I, I, I love it. I had gotten braids once and after a while I took them out. And my friends go, we like you with your natural hair more. Like we feel like it's you, it's your personality. You aren't you without, you know, sharing who you are as a whole. I'm like, well, I like my braids, but <laughs> so being, and then I'm learning more about the journey of like black people in this dysphoria that I've learned more about culture and how the slaves came through here to the port and how the history of Uruguay was with them, how Candombe was born here through the African people wanting to express themselves and their culture. And I don't know, it feels weird, but I feel a little bit closer to my blackness and maybe I don't know why that is, but I just do. But learning that there is so much rich history to learn has been so, so great for me. 
And I just feel like I can be comfortable in my skin in this country. I do not have to worry about all the things that we have to worry about being in the U.S., I feel like. I feel like it's so stressful having to worry about wearing your hair to an interview or this or that. And here I can just live. And that's always what I wanted to do, live. And it's not to say there aren't some you know, racist scenarios and that they, that that doesn't exist because that absolutely does exist. I mean, I've had an experience myself, which wasn't, it was, it, I guess you can say it was both racism and it was xenophobiaism. I guess that's how you say it. Because I was in a store with a friend of mine and we were both just speaking English to each other. And this old lady, I don't know, on the other side of the aisle when we were checking out, start saying something. My friend, she didn't even take two seconds, but she starts arguing back with the lady. And me and the cashier just eyeing each other. I'm like, what's going on, you know? So then it turns out that the lady thought I was from Venezuela. And she was saying how I need to get out of here. I don't belong here. Da, 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 da. But my friend was like, it doesn't matter where she's from. She's welcome here. And on top of that, she's not even from Venezuela. She's from America. And I could hear it as the conversation was happening. But the lady's tone completely changed when she found out I was an American. And I was just like, huh, that's interesting. But you don't get a pass because I'm black and speaking English. You wanted to put me in that box. And because I'm not a black Venezuelan, you are more accepting of me because I'm a black American. And I, I'm like, no, that doesn't change anything at all. That's still a racist thing. And I was just like, wow. So some people like to think that their xenophobiaism isn't tied to racism, but it is because you made that assumption about me based on the color of my skin, based on the language that I was speaking. And that was the only one time. And I'll never forget my friend jumped in and she stuck up for me. I've, I don't think I've ever had someone really stick up for me like that before. And that was just awesome and amazing and showed me a little bit that, you know, wherever you are, you still black, which I knew that that's, you know, that's why we do the research to see how many black people are in the country before we move there, <laughs> because we are black no matter where we go. When we move abroad, we as Americans have this idea in our head that everyone in the world understands and experiences racism, particularly toward the black community. And being in Uruguay, I have learned that that is not always the case. In Uruguay, because there were so few black people, they don't have the experience of the extreme racism that we experience or the hardships or anything. They don't, they are not aware of that. So it is kind of a, a not knowing thing. And they, um, for instance, there was this football player. I wish I could remember his name right now, who ended up calling one of the Englishmen Negrita, which is a term of endearment quote unquote, here in Latin America and got major backlash from uh, Europe and other countries. And he was an Uruguayan player. And that opened up the conversation of the language you use to talk to people of color because they don't see it as it being a wrong thing because for them, it's never been that way. But, but for us, you know, in the U.S., 
it is a different thing. And so I think it's important for people to understand that when we talk about blackness and all of those things, to keep an open mind that not every country or not understands that. And, and, and not every country is educated because they don't have, maybe they don't have a lot of blacks or programs or whatever to educate them on these sort of things. And to say something and be the person who kind of helps that understanding. I know we're tired of it. <laughs> I know, I know we don't want to educate no more, but there are some people who really just don't know and they don't mean any harm and they don't, you know, don't mean it negatively. They just simply don't know. And I, I feel like that is something that people should have an open mind to as they go about the world in different places. I asked Deandra, are there black people in Uruguay? So when I first moved here, I didn't see hardly any black folks. <laughs> and I knew through my research that there is a very, very, very tiny black community here. I knew that. And I was like, okay. So now, because of there's so many things happening in the world, that so many people are migrating and Uruguay is a big choice for a lot of people. And now our black community is quite much bigger than it was. I remember one time I rode the bus and I looked around me and for the first time it was all black people on the bus. And I was like, I had to text my friend like, yo, there's all black folks on the bus. What's happening? Like, it's just so out of like, I just couldn't even believe it. And that's when I, I could know that I'm like, okay, things have definitely changed. And I think the black community here is more consistent of, you know, people from African countries such as Nigeria or people from like the Dominican Republic or Cuba or Venezuela. And so we have a lot of blacks from different nationalities that come here. I don't think I've met one black American. And other than that, I haven't run into any more black Americans. They're normally from different countries. There is a group that I'm hoping to start attending called Afro Mundo. And they, I think they meet a couple of times a week, but I would really like to start going there and being more in touch. Um, they have like Afro Latina history month, but during that time they have a lot of speakers like Angela Davis came here and I was so gutted. I didn't get to see her. I was so mad. <laughs> I was like, do you guys know who Angela Davis is? <laughs> and, but there, there, I feel like the awareness around the black community is from what I see, there's more of an effort from a governmental standpoint, from a community standpoint, because they didn't have many blacks here. And so the, the, the knowledge and understanding of what is okay, what's not, how to be inclusive, diverse, has to be kind of talked about and brought up more here. And I kind of see that happening as the black community grows. And I'm thankful. <laughs> I'm thankful. I know one um, place I did end up meeting a lot of black people also was at church. I have a friend of mine who I met on the street and she was handing out flyers to braid hair. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I need to get box braids. Like, I can't believe it. Like you do that. She said, yes. So we kept bumping in each other and she would be like, oh, it's so good to see black people. <laughs> And she's from Nigeria. And then I started attending a church. And then that's where I met more black people from different countries. And so that was a great way also to meet people and to meet 
other people of color from different backgrounds. I asked Tiandra to share her overall reflections on not only moving to Uruguay, but the process of settling in and overcoming the natural struggles of immigration. It has been a journey. It has been a journey from deciding to come here on vacation to being here now. And I think one thing that that irks me still is um, sometimes how slow things can be. Like, you know, just, and I mean, I've gotten some patience around procedures and processes, but sometimes I'm like, okay, this thing should really only take a week two weeks, why Why am I still waiting a month? Like that kind of thing irks me. But it's something that I don't think will ever change. And the country in five years, you get to see the development and the change of everything around you, like the economy, globalization. You get to see how countries are touched by the U.S. and the decisions in the U.S., like, it is crazy to see how affected our money, our money is depends on the dollar, even though, you know, we have the Uruguayan peso. To see those, re- in five years, you can see so much change. I'm seeing, like, peanut butter wasn't a thing when I first got here. I cried because I didn't even realize peanut butter wasn't a thing. And it wasn't a thing. And now you start seeing more artisanal peanut butters now. You see bagels. Bagels was not a thing. And now you see bagels and donuts. And we still only got one flavor of Doritos, okay? We don't have a lot of variety here in Uruguay because a lot of things are imported. There's really no ranch dressing. Um, barbecue sauce was not a thing, but they're starting to understand that it is a necessity. <laughs> so seeing that is cool. Myself, I think the biggest thing is is the way I've changed. And you don't really think about it in the moment. You don't really probably reflect on it a lot, but wow, have I grown so much and changed so much. And I was telling my friend today, I feel like I don't give myself enough credit for doing what I've done. And I always kind of minimize and be like, oh yeah, but no, it is huge to come from the U.S. when you have nothing and just a dream and a, and a, and a suitcase and you're able to live in a country four or five years comfortably. Like even with all of the things I went through, those were all learning experiences for growth and for change within myself, being more patient, being more understanding, being go with the flow, living life um, in a more intentional way. Like here people live life more intentionally. They really care about their connections and their family and they really gather around food and, you know, football and <laughs> things like that. And it really give, gave me a, a sense of fulfillment, fulfillment in myself and the people that I have grown to know and love as if they are my family. And I couldn't be more thankful for the opportunity to do this because I, I don't know if I would be who I am now if I hadn't moved abroad. Belonging is a subject I'm really interested in lately because it's one thing to move to a place and to live somewhere. 
but it's an entirely different thing to feel like you belong in a place. And I have interviewed guests that did not feel as if they belonged in their home country. And I've interviewed guests that went abroad and still did not feel as if they belonged. So I asked Deandra her thoughts on belonging and living in Uruguay. I do. I do feel that I belong here and I feel like I am wanted here. And that's because of the people of Uruguay. I mean, every time I run into someone randomly on the street, they always know I'm not from here. And they ask me, where are you from? And I tell them and they say, oh, and of course, why are you here? And then they also, at the end of the conversation, they go, always go, oh, well, buen vendidos, enjoy our country, welcome to being here, we hope you enjoy. And then whenever I got my residency or when I would do things that were very Uruguayan in nature, maybe drinking mate or maybe using certain phrases, my friends and people around be like, you're Uruguayan. You, you, you belong here. This is your country. This is your home. You know, and I've had my friends say, you know, this is your home. And, oh, excuse me. <laughs> and that is just an amazing feeling to go to a country that you know nothing about, that you, it's the first country I've ever been to. And for the people to say, this is your home. We welcome you here. That is, that is something I never thought I would experience. And it has made my love for this country and being here that much more profound. I asked Tiandra for her thoughts on Black Girl Soft Life. I feel like now in the recent, I would say maybe more recent, last two years maybe, I feel like I'm starting to embark on that journey of soft life, especially within the last five months. I feel like being here allows me to do that. It, and people say, why Uruguay? And I say, because I get this type of peace that I've always wanted to have that I just cannot obtain being stateside. I cannot. And that peace allows me to be able to soften up and open up and enjoy myself more, explore myself more. This, this whole living abroad has been a, a self-discovery thing for me. And I feel like I wouldn't be able to explore certain aspects of myself had I not done this. And I feel like it's, it's, it's taking care of yourself in a way that maybe you wouldn't allow yourself before. Like, I really listen to my body and my emotions now. If I feel depleted or sad or just down, I allow myself to be in that for a certain time, of course. You know, you got to come out of it, but it's okay to be stressed, overwhelmed. And one thing is I've been saying in the last few, like, I'm tired of being strong all the time. People always, you're so strong. You're so, you've done so much. And it's like, you know, that's great. And I'm strong because I have to be, but I don't want to be. I don't want to be strong right now. I want to cry in my bed and eat a bunch of chocolate (laughs) and just be sad. Like, that's what I want to do. Or You know, I just want to go and be my myself and enjoy time alone, which is another part of soft life. I feel like 
it's kind of difficult to get out and be by yourself, enjoying your own company and allowing your mind to do whatever it does and think and having that silence, I feel also being able to sit with myself in silence, be able to sit with myself in peace, I feel like has been so beneficial for me. I've started a new ritual where I've always wanted fresh flowers in my house. Never, never do it. And so every Sunday now I go to the feria and I buy myself a bouquet of flowers and I have them until they die or whatever. But that is nice. Like the other day, one time I went to the park and just took a book and took like a little salad I made and some snacks and just sat there and read my book. And it's things like that, going on little solo weekend trips to a nearby little town and exploring that. It allows me to enjoy my life in a way that I think I've always wanted to enjoy it. And it is just fulfilling. And I feel like more black women should try soft life. I mean, not in the sense that it's like, it's not always going to be that way, but being soft with yourself, being gentle with yourself and just allowing yourself to be because we, we don't know how to do that. Like, I, I feel like it's not like naturally ingrained in us to be like that. And I think if we all take, make the effort to do that, maybe once a day here and there, that it can be profound and healing for, for everyone. Wellness. I asked Deandra, what is her personal definition of wellness? And how has moving to Montevideo influenced and perhaps evolved her concept and practice of wellness? For me, wellness is just taking care of yourself in all aspects mind, body, and spirit. And that can look different for everyone because everyone has their own way of caring for themselves. And for me, wellness is like being more gentle with myself, saying, hey, you you did this, enjoy this, celebrating myself and also forgiving myself, you know, in certain things. And I feel like being abroad, I have this ability to have the peace that I want that allows me to get more a clear on wellness for myself. And I feel like food has been a big thing. Like my mom always cooked for us. We were never fast food kids. But when I moved to Uruguay, it's so much less of what we're used to in the States. Like I'm making more things by hand. And, you know, the way I eat has changed and the stress that I had is lessened. And so my wellness has just, I feel like blossomed. And it's still, I feel like it's, it's a constant thing, right? It never, it's never cut off or ended. And now I feel like I'm working on emotional wellness. Emotional wellness, I feel like is something I'm currently exploring and trying to understand more. Thank you so much, Tiandra, for sharing your amazing story. If you're interested in keeping up with Tiandra, you can via social media. For those who want to be in touch with me regarding professional things, you can find me on LinkedIn. My name, Tiandra Burns, and just send me a connection request. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. 
And for more information about our guest, be sure to check out this episode's show notes on the website, flourishtotheforeign.com. That's where you'll see pictures, a full bio, and ways that you can connect with this guest. If you are considering a move abroad, I suggest you grab the Moving Abroad with Intention Guide. It is the perfect first step for you to get clear and confident and start to develop a strong intention for your move abroad. It's a guide with over 43 pages, all designed to help you get honest about what you're looking for when you move abroad and help you define what a life well lived abroad means and what the criteria must be for your move abroad to support that life. You can grab that guide at the website flourishintheforeign.com on our resources page. Also, there's a link in the description of this episode. And as always, big thanks to Zach Higgs, who produced the music of this here podcast. Remember, it's not about moving abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about flourishing abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. Just imagine how terrified they wanted to make my five-year-old. It was a city sheriff with a literal gun in a holster on his waist. They literally called the police to come and tell my five-year-old black son the severity of his actions. And that stuck with me. It stuck with me. I realized I have to get him out of here. <laughs>